Welcome and thank you for tuning in to Game Time Adjustments. I'm your co-host, James Harrelson. This podcast is designed to be the proverbial coach's halftime talk, complete with leadership insights, learning opportunities, and timely adjustments that will help champion you to win all throughout life. We believe that just as the sporting landscape provides teachable lessons that transcend the field of competition, so too everyday life provides teachable moments that, when properly applied, can help you improve not only as an individual, but as a leader in your family, business, and local community. This podcast is designed with everyday life in mind in a format that is fit for our audience. Our podcast guests are professionals in their respective fields. They range from coaches and teachers to business owners, politicians, pastors, writers, entertainers, athletes, shop workers, and stay-at-home parents. We believe that everyone has a story to tell and everyone has life experiences that can aptly benefit others. In this episode of Game Time Adjustments, former Fred Meyer CEO Ken Thrasher offers insights in how merging cultures can be the most challenging aspect of leading. Listen in as he provides thoughtful leadership nuggets for all levels as he has led startup businesses to organizations with more than 300,000 team members. Thrasher's experience is not only in leading well, but more importantly, living legacy-minded. His insights are a must-listen for anyone. Be sure to listen as he challenges you with thinking exponentially larger than your current reality. Let's now join our host, Bill Pugh, as he talks with guest Ken Thrasher in this episode of Game Time Adjustments. And thanks again for taking time. So let's just start with you know, just giving us a little bit uh, of background about yourself, married, uh, kids, and then I know your last uh, stop employment-wise was uh, as the CEO of, of Fred Meyer. So talk a little bit about the family side of things. Just give us a little context of who you are as a person and then uh, professionally kind of up to your, you know, transition to what you're doing now. Okay, uh, well, uh, Martin and I were both raised in Portland. We both, uh, both our families, we were born here. We grew up here. We went to, she went to David Douglas. I went to Franklin High School, and um, we met at Oregon State, and we've now been married 49 years this year. So with the big 50s coming up next year, we've had the fortune of adopting two wonderful sons, uh, one is a is a fashion designer, and the other works with special needs kids in schools. And our um, oldest son, the fashion designer, he and our daughter-in-law have three wonderful young boys, twin nine-year-olds and a seven-year-old, all uh, sons. And uh, they these grandsons are kind of the treasure of our life right now. So we spend a lot of time with them and enjoy our family time. Um, you know, professionally. Uh, I started out uh, going to work at uh, Mayflower Milk Company, where I worked while I was in college uh, and became the CFO there. Then we merged that with Terry Gold, and I then became the uh, treasurer at Fred Meyer and then moved up to CFO and then ultimately to CEO. Retired in 2001, and uh, after taking a year out, I uh, started a technology company with a couple other guys. And... Um, called Complete. We built that company, and then in December of 
2018, we sold that to our largest competitor in a strategic sale. And so now I just spend most of my time with family and and then also I sit on about six or seven boards these days, keeping busy with a lot of different interests, mostly around uh, economically disadvantaged children and families is where Martin and I have spent a lot of our philanthropy time and efforts around board service. Thank you for that uh, introduction, uh, Ken, of who you are and your background. It's uh, It really is amazing. So a couple things, or I wrote down three kind of things that really, you know, stand out when I read over your biography and then obviously heard it again just now. But, um, you know, you were Oregon State, so um, my son is a uh, junior and Oregon State is recruiting him for football. So we were down in the uh, facility on Saturday and uh, getting a tour around. What is your involvement, uh, if any, as an alum, and what would be your recommendation to my son as he, he considers his college choice? Well, you know, Oregon State was um, a great awakening for me, I'll call it. I went to Portland State my first year uh, of college. Mm-hmm. I was still working at uh, with Bill Nado's companies, who was my mentor at the time, and then I needed to make more money, so I moved over to the co-op and then went to Portland State. But I wanted to get away from home, so I moved down to Oregon State and went to school there in accounting and finance in the business school. And since that time, I've become heavily involved uh, in the business school on the Dean's uh, Council of Excellence, which is like the advisory board for the university's College of Business. I've uh, been very active in it, uh, chaired the campaign that... Um, part of the overall campaign that Ed Ray, Ray raised $1.1 billion. I chaired the business schools part of that, including the building of the Austin Hall, which is where the new business school is located at, and also was involved in the development of Weatherford, which is where their entrepreneur program is at, and Martin, I've given uh, donations to both of those programs. So we are really involved. Stay, I'm still on the council and active. I think Oregon State's a great place to go to school. I think the environment, the college setting, uh, the faculty, the leadership that Ed and his team have brought, I just think has been really tremendous. And I hate to see him retiring here this end of this year, but they've already hired the new president from LSU. And uh, I know they will continue with their excellence in education. So the next thing is uh, 49 years, That's, that's amazing. And I guess your wife is uh, on the docket, if not already um, fully uh, vested as a saint. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but what what would be kind of uh, one or two kind of just reflections? I mean, that's that's really a you know lifetime in and of itself. What would be a word of encouragement um, with regard to you know younger folks like? myself or people listening with regard to staying the course and, you know, what's kept you in the game and been successful marriage-wise for all that period of time. That's that's amazing. Well, I think it's, uh, number one, it starts with really enjoying the person you love and live with. And uh, in Marta's case, we've had a fantastic life together and I couldn't have had a better life partner. And, you know, I think it really started with her family. I married into her family and her family were just great people and 
it's just yeah. uh, uh, such a great uh, life to live with a family that appreciates you and you appreciate them. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of families have tension. We just have never had that. But the one thing I've always learned in a marriage, it's like anything in life. If you can't compromise, uh, you won't go very far. You won't live together very long. So we've been able to, you know, compromise and make decisions for the best interests of both of us and our children and our grandchildren. And I think that's uh, part of what life's about is finding that middle ground. I wish our politicians could do that today. Wow. Great, great, great advice. That's, uh, that is really good. And then lastly, with your uh, two adopted boys, talk about uh, that and what inspired it. Well, we found out fairly early on in our marriage that we couldn't have children. So we had to decide whether we were going to be childless or whether we were going to do something to affect that. So we decided adoption was the best strategy. We uh, put our name on the list to adopt a child from Albertina Curse Centers, which uh, it, there's a, that's why the connection with Kerr and my background in board service, I've always loved that organization because one of our children, our youngest son, was adopted through Kerr. And then our oldest son uh, is actually from Thailand, and my brother-in-law um, lived in the Far East and was actually in Thailand and found our oldest son, Jeff, available for adoption, called one Saturday morning, and he said, are you interested in adopting a Thai child? I've, there, I've found one here available if you want to adopt. He said, but I need to know kind of soon, and we didn't even hang up. We said, let's get it rolling, and we got the paperwork done, and Marta flew over. I had to work to, at that time to pay the bills, and she brought him home, and uh, he's now wow. 45 years old, a successful fashion designer, and just an amazing young man. He's just uh uh, he's a great family person. He's a, a great human being, and uh, mm. we're very proud of him. And then right. Ryan, we're very proud of because, you know, he had a little struggles early in life. He had a stuttering mm-hmm. problem and and had some other physical issues from birth. And uh, Marta, being the wonderful mother she is, she really shepherded him through the health system and got those kind of issues dealt with very effectively and couldn't have done it, obviously, without her home support all the time. Mm-hmm. And he's just turned out, he, you know, he works with special needs kids. They love him because just who he is, he's a very personable uh, young man. And um, he's single. Uh, he likes his lifestyle. And he has more friends than anybody I've ever seen. So he has a network that's uh, pretty wide. And uh, we really, really appreciate him. Throughout uh, throughout our life, you know, there's probably two, three, four people that have been um, our biggest influences, uh, a, a parent, uh, a sibling, uh, a boss, a coach. Who are maybe one or two of those people in your life, Ken, and, and why are they that influential? Or what, what about them uh, influenced you as you look back on your life? Well, there are two people that I, I always talk about as being the most influential in my life. You know, uh, because I had kind of a tough family life growing up, you know, it was some of the external influences that affected me the greatest. And one of those uh, greatest influences probably was Bill Nato, uh, who headed Northwest China in Port Plaza. And, you know, I went to work for him in high school, and Bill was one of those people that he could recognize if somebody was a hard worker. And I was a hard worker because I had to because I didn't have a lot of money. And Bill kind of took me under his wing and 
he one day asked me, he said, what are you doing when you get out of high school? And I said, well, I think I'm just going to get a job and and try to, you know, make a living working. And he said, well, that's not acceptable. He said, you know, you uh, have a lot of capacity. You need to go to college. You need to set some goals. And you need to have a, have a, a career path that you can grow into and be successful into. And, you know, that really influenced me because he – we met a number of times over his life until he passed away, and he always stayed in that mentor role and was a great advisor. So he did a really good job just getting me to think about college and, and a career. And then the second is Mrs. Nyland, Phyllis Nyland. Mm-hmm. She was my in Franklin High School my junior, senior year. I took a booking class just for a filler. I thought it was going to be more like a filler credit. Well, it didn't turn mm-hmm. out to be a filler credit. It turned out to be a career because she recognized that I had pretty good skills in math and um, a real aptitude for bookkeeping accounting. And so she really in, encouraged me to think about accounting finance as a career. And so when I went to Portland State, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. So with Bill's push to college and Mrs. Nyland's pushed a, a career focused in accounting finance. I started out and never wavered from that, and it was because of their influence. That's great. And um, like in my own life, I'd, I'd say probably a, like a coach and and my dad. It's it's really amazing. And, and the cool thing about it is I'm sure with each of those people, um, they had no idea the level or impact they were having in your life and so the cool thing about you is um you're doing likewise you know you're you're taking what's been invested in you and you're in return giving back and in so many ways so that's really cool and the one kind of the cycle of being invested in and then investing back uh in others is being is being returned so yeah good for well, you i would and, say that bill uh there that was another influence bill told me he said you know what I would hope is if you're successful in your career, you wouldn't just think of that as having a lot of money, but you would consider giving that back to the community, both your time and your treasure, because that's what, you know, that's what part of our responsibility is, is to give it back. For sure. So you, you mentioned that you, um, by, you know, anybody's account, you ascended kind of to the highest pinnacle professionally, certainly as the CFO and then CEO of Fred Meyer, one of the largest, you know, grocery or retailers in the United States. So at that point, when you were uh, leading the, the company, how many employees did you have? How many kind of direct reports? And what's an accomplishment during that time frame professionally maybe that you were most proud of? Well, you know, Fred Meyer, uh, when it was independent, well, there was about 35,000 employees, Bill. And um, in the late 90s, we started to think about uh, what we were going to do with the company because Colbert Kravitz Roberts had, Roberts had exited us. They were We were bought in a leverage buyout, which is one of the reasons I ended up at Fred Meyer because they needed a treasurer at that time. So... After they exited the company's uh, their investment in the company in the mid '90s, we started to look at alternatives for the growth of the business, and so we decided to go on an acquisition spree. And so we acquired Smith's uh, Food and Drug Company in Salt Lake, QFC in Seattle, uh, and Ralph's Food for Less down in uh, LA area. 
brought those companies all together into one organization through mergers, which is part of my probably biggest success story is getting all these mergers done. But uh, we went from, you know, being a $5 billion company, 35,000 employees, to being a $16 billion uh, company with about uh, 110,000 employees. And that happened over two years. So just Did the, you say 35,000 30, to 110,000 employees? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So they, when you think about just this magnitude of that growth and the integration of that, uh, it was pretty phenomenal. And then what got me to the CEO role was Kroger uh, approached us in 1999, about a year after we completed the other mergers, and said, you know, we would really like to look for an opportunity to combine with you because we, we're in the East, you're in the West. We don't have a lot of competing um, operations, so could we put the two companies together? And we agreed that made a lot of sense because right. food company valuations were higher than non-food. And so mm-hmm. the more we positioned the company as a food company, the greater the valuation pop was for our shareholders. So we put that merger together in 99, and then when we completed that, uh, I became the CEO of the Fred Meyer division of Kroger. So the magnitude, you go from a 35,000, 5 billion to 50 billion and 300,000 employees over a course of about three and a half years. That's pretty rapid growth. That's pretty rapid growth. We became the largest grocery <laughs> retailer in the United States through those series of mergers. I, I think I relate to you that my dad uh, was the senior vice president of Bake Foods with Kroger um, on a parallel track, and wow. he, he was overseeing all of the Bake Foods division, of course, back then in the the 70s and 80s, they were doing all that uh, still in-house, and he was running all the bakeries around the country, and, and there was about 10,000 people that reported up through his chain, and I always, like, was so, like, you know, could never figure out how you would ever manage an organization. So what was maybe one takeaway for you, like, with that size of responsibility how did you like stay on top of, or what's maybe one um, actionable item that you did on a daily basis, or maybe a perspective that you brought to bear to kind of stay out on the crest of the wave and to be able to lead uh, from that size of an organization? Well, I think the key is when you do um, these large mega mergers like this, you have to really focus on culture and your people because the reality is when you're merging cultures, that's the most difficult part of a, mer- of a merger acquisition. It's probably the biggest reason they fail. So we would spend, uh, I spent a lot of time talking to employees, uh, trying to figure out what issues they had and making sure we were dealing with the, what I'll call the environmental issues in the organization because if you don't deal with those, they have a tendency to undermine your operations because people are not happy. And mm-hmm. mergers are really hard on people because, as you we you know we were the acquired company we weren't, weren't really the acquiring yeah. in the in the Kroger merger, whereas in the prior ones we were the acquirer. In this case, you know a lot of things were coming down from Kroger that were changed in practice and policy. And part of my job was to make sure people could accept change, and and we had to decide what made sense and what didn't make sense, and should we push back on things or not. So just manage that cultural 
fit between the organization and listening to people um, and understanding what their issues are was really critical from my point of view. You were having, you know, hundreds of things thrown at you on a daily basis. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, it really was focusing on the kind of acclimation and culture reorientation for the Fred Meyer side of the business for you to be a successful, you know, uh, successful part of the Kroger business going forward. We'll be back with today's guest right after this. We appreciate our sponsors, Brennan, Martin, Pugh & Associates, offering next-generation consulting services. Also, EDR Marketing, providing corporate hospitality and event marketing solutions. Their impact provides resources that bring both purpose and meaning for our listening audience. If you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, please be sure to contact us at GameTimeAdjustments.com. Now back with today's conversation. What's a life lesson like that you wish that you uh, kind of had either adapted or come across when you were younger, and how would knowing that, looking back, have maybe changed uh, your trajectory? Well, I would say uh, the biggest life lesson that I've talked to students about and others that I've come into discussion about was the the value of understanding that failure can be okay. You know, I uh, when Bob Miller first became the CEO at Fred Meyer in 1992, after a short period of time, I was still the CFO for him, and he called me into his office one day and he said, Ken, you're just not getting it done. What you're doing is not meeting the needs of the organization and what I need is from a CFO. And boy, wow. it took me back because I thought, oh, boy, yeah. I'm done. This is it. And I had to um, kind of reassess, and the best way to, to deal with that, I thought, was head on. And so I said, Bob, I need you to tell me directly what you need me to be doing that's different so that I can wow. modify my behavior and my practice to be sure that I'm meeting the needs of the organization and what you expect from me as the CEO. And we had a great relationship after that. Instead of it being, you know, adversarial, mm-hmm. uh, it was a very positive relationship because we were able to reconcile, again, compromise what the issues were. I could work on some things or my team that needed to work on things. And I think that that realization that I was failing in what he needed as a CFO was a big wake-up call and one that actually if I had had that kind of experience earlier in life i probably would have benefited even greater but this is i mean this is in the middle of my career and thinking i may not be around for a while (laughs) but how about how cool like looking back at that kind of fork in the road how like that's i was having a conversation a frank conversation with one of my kids the other day and uh it's just awesome when you both go into it with a greater good in mind, and then the receiving person takes it from a coachable standpoint like you did, it really does then make you better and the person leading you better. So, yep. yeah, that's that's great advice and 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 timeless. I mean, it's you're, you're always working through that cycle, aren't you? Yeah, and I think what it told me is you can't assume anything. If yeah. you really want to know what the game plan is. You have to set with your 
manager or with your organization, what what are the clear expectations of deliverables they need? And yeah. then set goals and then measure those. And if you're not achieving them, what's the plan to fix them? You know, as Cy Green, the president, Fred Meyer, said to me one time, he hates people that come into his office with a problem because then they're the victim. He wants them to come in with a problem <laughs> and a solution. And I think yeah. that's what we have to do in a business. We have to think yeah. through the problem. What are the alternatives? How do we fix it? Great advice. So, like, just from an overall uh, top-line trajectory, how, how do you, how does Ken Thrasher kind of define success? Professionally, personally, you know, like in your heart of hearts or as you kind of go through your day or even as you reflect back over your incredible life and the wonderful accomplishments and things that you've been able to be a part of or even lead, how how do you define like success with regard to when you lay your head on the pillow at the end of the day? Well, both personally and professionally, I've always, and this is Bill Nato speaking right to me, Ken, you set goals, you measure results on a timeline. Are you achieving yep. those goals? If you aren't, what path course change do you need to take to get there? And what additional information or education? Uh, be open to learning more about what your deficiencies are. And so I've always had a goal-setting mindset. I knew when I wanted to be the CFO and by what age I achieved mm-hmm. that. I knew when I wanted to become a CEO. Uh, you know, so I've set goals both personally and for my family. Yeah. And I'm trying to get my kids to do that uh, same process because without that, you really don't have a benchmark or measure if you're achieving what you want to achieve in your life. So uh, what's one or two uh, questions that, that every leader, you know, again, you've led, it's it's the highest level, but what, what's one or two, you know, questions for people that are, you know, leading small companies or even leading uh, at home as a, as a mom or a dad? What are some questions that you would encourage them to ask of themselves? And I'm assuming it will kind of tie into what you just talked about, but what would also be what what they should be asking of those they lead? Well, I think in business you have to always ask, is what you're doing in alignment with your mission? Is it yes. ethical? Mm-hmm. Uh, and do am I listening? Am I listening? I think a lot of times leaders have a tendency not to listen. They have a tendency to talk and t- talk talk top down to the organization. I'm yes. I'm kind of the opposite. I'm a, a kind of a a quality improvement type person. I like to involve people that do the work in the decision making. And so I like to listen mm-hmm. to what they think about the work they do and let them help bring the solution forward because I think it makes them better uh, workers but also better management potential to grow in the business. So I think that's really uh, important. And then I think um, you have to – I ask every day, am I, am I adding value to society mm-hmm. and what I'm doing in my life? It's not just mm-hmm. about accumulating wealth. It's not just about having a great family. But it's about are you, how, how do you influence others to be successful? We have so many economically disadvantaged children and families that are mm-hmm. struggling. I think it's about 40% of America today are underemployed or struggling in many ways. And helping them you know, achieve some level of success to me is, is kind of the golden nugget if you can make that happen. 
uh, what do you want to be remembered for, uh, Ken, when you're kind of long uh, gone here in terms of your time on Earth? What What's maybe one or two things that you'd like to be part of your uh, legacy and what, what people remember about you? Well, I first of all want to be remembered as being a, a good husband, father, and grandfather. That, to me, is awesome. number one. Uh, and then two, what have I done to help others be successful and help them with ethical decision-making and doing the right thing? Is there anything that you're doing as part of your kind of repeating ongoing repertoire that you would encourage others to look into or or do likewise? Yeah, I have a pretty pretty uh, specific regimen every day. I like to walk every day. I don't always get there because of meetings, but I try to walk every day to be health be healthy. Mm-hmm. I get up. I read the Oregonian. I read the New York Times, and I read the Wall Street Journal daily, and mm-hmm. weekly I read the Economist. And then uh, every day I have a cat. My cat has to have cat time. So there's a period of the day where if I don't sit down and she's in my lap and I'm brushing her, oh. she is not going to be happy. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's the routine is definitely there, but it's all yeah. my you know, I'm a person that also every time I have meetings, I'm always prepared. I read the material beforehand. I go yeah. to the meeting with the questions that I think need to be asked. And so being prepared whenever you're yeah. going to a meeting to me, uh, and whether it's a family meeting or it's a mm-hmm. work meeting or it's a nonprofit board being prepared is really important, and you just are much more efficient in your life if you do those things. I don't do social media because I think it just wastes too much of my time. I've gotten to yeah. where I just I don't. Anything additional that you'd like to to say as a word of encouragement or inspiration, or um, you know, just to kind of shout out to the folks listening. You know, one of the things I spend a lot of time talking with the young people that I I talk to and work with on either career or personal issues is there's this whole balance of life issue. You know, people get mm-hmm. you know, overburdened in one part of their life. It might be career, it might be home problems, it might be uh it might be spending too much time and trying to recreate. <laughs> but people get out of balance and what happens is when you get out of balance your whole life kind of implodes on you. It, it, your family has struggles with your family, your work isn't as efficient as it can be. So I try to tell people, you know, to Finding the right balance in your life for all the things that you're trying to balance and do is important. So I always direct them to the Covey Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That book mm-hmm. probably is the most influential book mm-hmm. I've ever read because it touches not just your work, but your personal life needs mm-hmm. and attributes that make you successful. So I try to get people to really think about that because, boy, especially in today's times, you can get hung up watching this news feed and just destroy yeah. yourself emotionally. And I think mm-hmm. we've got to get away from that kind of stuff by creating more balance. Thank you again for listening. If you missed the podcast, don't worry. We have show notes, links, and resources available at GameTimeAdjustments.com. Until next time, remember that no matter the challenges you face in life, with the proper timely adjustment, you can not only redefine success, but you can ultimately win all throughout life. Our host for this podcast is Bill Pugh. Our producer is Matt Dunn. Our associate producer is Ashley Russell. And I'm your co-host, James Harrelson. 
On behalf of all of us here at Game Time Adjustments, thank you for tuning in. We'll be back with you again very soon. 